Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Thank you for listening. Brendan here with Mark, episode 292, Thursday, May the 4th. 2023 mark you said you're hot i thought all the all the chicks used to say that about you didn't they God. you are hot aren't you what's happening up there it's a bit steamy is it up, up it north is in it's partic- particular well I, I was saying to you i've been doing a little bit more exercise lately i've been trying to shed my sloth and get out and do a little bit of, of more activity but geez and the consequences I was highlighting to you uh, of a vigorous five-kilometre walk early in the afternoon. Here. You can smell something from That's here, right. Mark. Yes. Uh, 4,000 kilometres is not nearly far enough to be away <laughs> from my body odour at the moment. And I don't think you should jump in the river just in case there's a little friendly crocodilian ready to have a snack, Mark. So just be careful where you wash. I will be careful, Brendan. I will indeed. I will indeed. Be careful. Well, I'll tell you the other reason I've been warm is because I've been near our camp oven. I've been making some bread, Brendan. I know we've started to talk about this before, and I wanted to – I know I just feel something about mixing, getting the the, 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 – my little – the proof uh, yeast right. yeast going yes. first and, yes. and my little um spongy growth and then mixing it in with the flour and proofing it the first time and and you didn't get that yeast from your socks I hope. dividing no. dividing it into loaves proofing yes. it again yes and giving it a quick bake brendan it comes out of the oven just and like, warm bread oh. the only problem is you tend to eat too many pieces yes. of it, and <laughs> if you eat too many too quickly while it's still warm, you get one big stomach ache, don't you? Oh, I've found. Um, yeah. But, yes, it is good, and as we were chatting before we started, I'm keen to get back into it. I used to have a a uh, sourdough starter oh, um, yes. that I had. I reckon I kept that for like two years, Mark, in the fridge, um, my little sourdough, and I'd just cut off a little, feed it, feed which it. is basically doing stuff all you just give it a little bit of uh, if it look looking a bit dry give it a bit of water and you add a bit more a bit more flour you know if you want to get pedantic you add a little bit of particular type of flour i suppose and it does its thing mark and and as it ages and it's why everybody you know has these many decade-long sourdoughs that it, it matures it's a bit like an old an aged wine isn't it mark they get more and more um gnarly as they get older <laughs> and then you just add that a little bit of that sourdough um, mix, yeasty mix to the um to your dough mix mark when you when you make your loaf and that's what a sourdough loaf ends up being i used to love that so i'm planning on doing that again soon um as we were chatting about that all started because i was talking about we are in, having an install of a new oven tomorrow so that should be Exciting. God, we're we getting boring, Mark. We're talking about um, baking bread and, and ovens in, in a veterinary podcast. 
How does that how does that get there? Look, I I, I always get to this point in the podcast where we <laughs> waffle about something, and I think it's really important to, like I feel, have these balances in our veterinary professional life. I think it's good to uh, contemplate some of the things, you know, outside those things we reflect on most frequently, our professional life. But I reckon it's good to think about yes. the photography, the bread, the baking, all and, those other and things. And we do get some interesting emails and contact from our listeners. And a shout-out to our listeners, Mark. I want um, I want a good bagel recipe because um, when I, I said to the girls, I'm going to make some bagels um, and because they're a little bit fiddly to, you know, sort of bread baking and then boiling as well. and. They still remember the time when I was, I reckon, when they were about five years of age and I made bagels and I forced them to eat it and I think it scarred <laughs> them for life. So they said, oh, please don't make bagels anymore. So I want a good bagel re- recipe, Mark. So if anybody's got a good bagel recipe uh, that's Brendan proof, um, vetgurus at gmail.com and um, I'll be very appreciative. And a bit of a, a, a quick another shout-out, Mark, to first-year Melbourne Polytechnic students. Um, I finished my little presentations to them. Our, our, and, that, geez, they did a good job. They had to produce a, a care sheet, Mark, a two-page, uh, one-page double-sided care sheet or a brochure yeah. for clients that would be suitable for clients. Um, this is the first, first year of Bachelor of Veterinary Nursing and in their groups, and they were fantastic at, just quietly, they were better than last year's group, um, and some of them might be listening, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, very, very um, visual um, and good information. You know, you want a nice punchy little brochure that, if you're in the waiting room and you think, you know, I'm considering purchasing a rabbit or a bearded dragon or a snake, um, and you see a little brochure saying. You know, it's general snake care, and it has you know, and it goes through the basics there, just in in double sided sheet mark, and they nailed it virtually all of them. So um, it was fantastic. So shout out to them because um, one of them came up to me, and you know who you are um, afterwards, and said <laughs> um, you made a shout out. You gave a shout out to the third years, but what about the first years? So there you go. That's my shout out to first years. <laughs> So I think with that, Mark, we should get into some news stories before we lose all our listeners completely. And let me try and find my news story. I'll go first. So I accidentally opened up all my photos there. I'll close that. Here we go. You're on fire. Capybaras, Mark. Cap- I love this story. It's some Don't great- we all I love, love capybaras. Yeah. yeah. So this was from Science News. Um, quite an interesting little study showing that capybaras thrive even near humans because they're not picky eaters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, scientists studying capybara diets were, were um, surprised when they found they seemed just as happy munching on leafy forest plants as grasses. Um, and because they're not particularly particular, Mark, they looked at two different two different um, populations in in South America, and they analysed the food there. And um, yeah, they found that you know not surprisingly, um, having capybaras, and they got a great picture of um, capybaras um, eating in a grazing in a park, Mark, in a, in a city in Brazil there, and it's a pretty amazing little picture there. Um, so big guinea pigs, Mark, um, big very big guinea pigs and because they're quite happy to eat grass as they are 
some of the other sort of agricultural crops as well that they um, they're thriving quite well in the city there. I, I just worry how many. I tell you what, they'd feed a family for a fair <laughs> a week or two, wouldn't they? If um, if if they are taken for that, because we know that guinea pigs are used, um, especially in in South America for um, for food um, in those. Um, non-urban areas so I wonder whether some of those capybaras are taken for human food Mark not that I'm advocating that but, um, but there we go Mark but, but the interesting thing about your story was that that one of the things that capybaras tend to get into and comes as no surprise are the, you know the crops the the yes um, the they think they've and whatnot you could imagine them sitting there just just um, big, big I puddings. The, yeah. I love the report here. Crop-eating capybaras can get too chunky yes. and suffer poor health. Um, and, of course, they're uh, consequently viewed as pests by the God, farmers. If, imagine what a obese capybara is like if <laughs> normal ones are big enough, aren't they? Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, I love capybaras. It's it's one species I've, I've certainly seen in zoos, but I've haven't had the pleasure or the the, the, the the thrill of treating them at all, Mark, or seeing them in the wild, have you? No, no, and it would be a thrill. It would be just wonderful to see them in the wild in one of those cities, in the city parks of Brazil. Not on a plate, Mark, in the <laughs> wild. We want to see them. What's your news story, Mark? Mine's a bit, um, well, I think it's an awareness thing, Brendan. It's an awareness thing. Reuters report um, that a Chinese woman um, who is 56 years old was is the first poor person, unfortunately, to be recorded to have died from the H3N8 bird flu. The, the World Health Organization is constantly monitoring the subtypes of avian influenza. And, um, and there's been very few people infected with the H3N8 subtype, which is very prevalent in wild bird flocks and also circulates in the large uh, poultry population in China and doesn't cause any signs of disease in the birds, but uh, causes serious uh, disease in humans that manage to be infected. And, And while we don't one person has survived. We don't know the outcome of the second person, but this third person um, uh, has passed away. So I suppose we've just got to uh, be thankful that uh, the World Health Organization is monitoring this all around the world, and especially in China where the, the, uh, the perfect storm of wet markets and uh, large numbers of, of poultry in relatively... Uh, poor socioeconomic circumstances just creates that poor, perfect storm where maybe the disease could be in uh, becoming you know infect people and if for some reason that subtype developed an increased ability to transfer between people fortunately there's no sign at the moment that uh, all all the cases have been recorded as transfers from from poultry, uh, but it would be disastrous for if we uh, if that uh, d- subtype started circulating amongst people. So thank goodness, 
the World Health Organization is keeping an eye on it, Brendan. Yes, and I tell you what, the I think the world's still pretty fragile after. I was going to say the recent not, pandemic. We're, we're and not we, ready if, for another pandemic, yeah. if we had another pandemic um, shortly, uh, uh, it would be difficult um, to say the least. Yes. Well, difficult. with that. Very uplifting story, Mark. Um, I think I prefer my capybara one. Um, we'll jump into our main topic this week, and we're covering, as you may or may not have guessed from the title, um, what did I have the title? Of? Grit. Well, it's probably not telling you much. <laughs> we're talking sludge. We're talking rabbit splatter f- sludge. Urinary sludge in rabbits is our topic. That's what you suggested. And we did cover this slightly or to a certain degree in episode 248, Mark, as you'll remember. Good Which times. was August the 6th, or 148 actually, I think it was. Or well, Anyway, it was August the 6th, 2000. <laughs> And I'm trying to look it up. 2020, <laughs> August 6, 2020. Uh, and it was mainly on bladder flushing, but we did talk a little bit about urinary sludge in rabbits on that day or topic or episode. So, Mark, what is urinary sludge? What is, let's just, let's just call it bladder sludge, sludge. or sludge, sludge. In rabbits. What is it? What is it? It's awful, Brendan, is what it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's calcium salts, a variety of different calcium salts, often calcium carbonate, insoluble salts that have precipitated in the urine, in the bladder, and have remained there. And they develop, sometimes uh, they, the, those calcium salts will form stones in a rabbit's, rabbit's bladder, but very often they, will well probably most of they they're often there but they're regularly passed brendan most of the time they get passed but sludge forms when for whatever reason some of the reasons we'll talk about shortly it uh it sediments out and sits there and it forms this horrible plasticine toothpastey like texture material that well, can cause a whole series of problems, obstruction, pain, um, a whole series of quality yes. of life issues and you end for the up, rabbit. You know, that, that um, jumping ahead, it often is presented as a rabbit that the client sees this sludge, this grit um, around the perineal region of that rabbit that it's urinated and so, and then it dries out, and you have these flecks of these grit, this gritty material around the around the um, perineal region. And or, I think that's a, that's an important thing, Brendan, because I think <laughs> lots of people will come in to say, "Oh, look, the the urine in the the the, the litter tray or the bedding um, has some calcium salts in it." But if the rabbit doesn't have that staining around its its perineum, if it uh, is urinating normally and using the normal locations, I still think it's worth investigating, but it, the reasons to investigate escalate dramatically when uh, that you know jumps over into uh, a project. Yes. Yeah. And I think that introduces our, our other main point or one of our points is how common is it how how often do do rabbits have sludge and very common very most common. rabbits 
we'll have some sludge there and you may never see it there um, because it's the process, as you mentioned, Mark, of them dealing with um, their calcium metabolism is it is excreted through the urinary system. So we have those calcium crystals, those calcium precipitates um, coming through the kidneys and into the bladder and then out from there. And it may be in, intermittent as far as what you see outside the rabbit mark um, around that perineal region or in the in the litter tray. So you ha- may have a rabbit that is urinating supposedly perfect urine, whatever that may be, and then it has little splodges of that um, gritty, sludgy material in the litter tray. Um, so my next question, Mark, and this is a bit of a bit of a loaded question isn't it is it normal is it normal oh it's a loaded question brendan (laughs) and in my usual decisive fashion i'm gonna say sometimes yes sometimes no yeah i think think, it is i I think that's all you need to say mark yes in in that it it is is a normal process that calcium (laughs) metabolism but it can become an issue yes and and that I'm indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be indecisive, Mark, indecisive, Mark, but now I'm not so sure. So <laughs> we'll move on from there and talk about the, yeah, how do we work it up? How do we determine is this something we need to worry about with this individual rabbit or is it just a rabbit that has intermittent bit of sludgy urine coming out of it and it's perfectly happy and healthy otherwise? Well, I reckon the key thing is, to do the usual things that we would do. So we get a great clinical examination, particularly focusing on your abdominal palpation. Now, if I can comfortably feel that plasticine-like mass way down in the caudal abdomen, um, then I start to worry. If there's no, you know, if there's a bit of sludge in the urine, but there's nothing palpable in the in the bladder, then I worry less. But I don't just depend on the sensitivity of my fingers, Brendan. I would regularly leap to some diagnostic imaging. And and in this regard, I've found, particularly because it's calcium carbonate, um, I find radiographs just very useful. A high degree of contrast gives me an accurate picture of, of where that sludge is. It does give me a bit of a clue about the size of the bladder and maybe I have some uh, intermittent obstruction which is causing dilation of the bladder. Um, it tells me if there's any sludge retro-pulsed or even uh, precipitating out in the kidneys. So that for, for all those reasons, I love getting some uh, radiographs. Radiographs, absolutely, yes. Way to go, Mark. Way to go. <laughs> and when you're palpating that those bladders in them, um, if if it's progressed from the supposed normal sludge as we mentioned to something not normal, then evil sludge. Often you went, it's going to relate uh, result in a painful bladder mark and also a thickened bladder wall. And I don't know about you, Mark, but um, I think we get reasonably good at detecting whether or not that bladder wall is thickened just by palpation with them and the other the other obvious point there is that um, a painful response of palpating that bladder as well compared with a slight discomfort of palpating a normal bladder always be careful brendan 
in my experience, I'm uh, always careful, Mark. <laughs> the palpation may elicit the increased pressure and the manipulation of the sludge, and the pain may all result in a reflex uh, sudden expulsion of some urine. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking that I was, I was wondering where you're going with that, and, and that, just, that just popped into my head. And I said, once he's finished this point, I'll talk about the fact that you can have, suddenly have an explosion of sludge, yes. a sludge explosion in the consult room, and it's not a not a pretty picture there, Mark. And often when you have that sludge explosion, it's you end up with a bit of hemorrhage there as well, so you end up with this blood-tinged sludge everywhere, don't you? And it is that it's an interesting point that it's not uncommon at all to get a little bit of um, hemorrhage, and it can be a little bit difficult to tell just eyeballing the sample because many rabbit urine samples will contain pigments from the plants they eat, which may impart a rusty or even red colour. Um, and so I tend to only, you know, I depend on those dipsticks to confirm to me that we have haemoglobin. But you will regularly in the pathological cases when there's some inflammation and straining, um, you will get a little bit of, of hemorrhage and it's definitely a clinical sign worth noting. Yep. Important though, Brendan, very, very important in my experience is not to be sidetracked um, because while there may be some hemorrhage as a result of your palpation, um, however gentle you are, in my experience, the most common reason for blood in the urine of rabbits is, uh, is you know, those cancers that female rabbits get. Um, so don't be drawn away by a bit of uh, calcium in the urine and then a spot of blood to be thinking you're just mm, dealing with great sludge. Great point. So we're not thinking just sludge. Uh, yes. We- so we've got to, you know, don't get blinkered. Okay, so our workup, Mark, um, for these cases, um, determining whether it's normal or not normal, um, assuming we're dealing with an abnormal one, we take our radiograph, we do our clinical examination, what other techniques may we consider? And you touched on, let's expand a little bit on the urinalysis there. And one of the one of the rabbits being different with a lot of things, one of the um, difficulties with rabbits is, is determining what's normal as far as a, U, a USG mark in a rabbit. Um, specific gravity in rabbits is a pretty broad range, which is supposedly normal, and um, it's it's always a bit rubbery, isn't it, trying to decide whether a rabbit's urine is hypothesinuric. What's your thoughts on that? You've taken the words out of my mouth. Um, I do think, I think it's, always useful to get a urinalysis but in rabbits it's much much harder to be equivocal you 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 often have to look at the case in light of the clinical signs in light of the radiographic evidence in light of microscopic examination of the urine and and make your interpretations uh, on repeated urinalyses rather than a single one because exactly as you've said the 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 uh, wide range of normal can sometimes mislead you. It's a challenge, is, is, is I suppose, my summary with it there. Um, what about doing cultures, Mark? Look, I have done cultures on these, but most of these sludge cases, in my experience, are, are not associated with infectious processes. And look, at, I find it quite amazing because 
there often is uh, significant trauma to the mucosa as a result of the sludge. And the urethra is a fairly large diameter and a little bit saggy in my experience compared to other species. And I sort of thought, oh, this is always going to be easy for bacteria to work their way up into the bladder. But my experience is that the cultures, we definitely do get occasional urinary tract infections in rabbits, but yeah, most of these sludge cases are not associated with any bacterial cause. Yeah, I suppose the only addition I'd have on there is the possibility that we have a localised bacterial infection of the skin mark um, from that perineal scald in there. So we often end up with a skin infection that we may, which is why we, well, uh, I tend to um, more often than not then place some on antibiotics to help cover that um, aspect of it as well. Ultrasound, Mark, what do you think about that with these ones? Look, I always love, you know, I love getting the ultrasound out and whacking it on anything that will bounce a sound back to it. Um, but I, I have not found um, the ultrasound images to be additionally useful beyond the, the radiographs, except when I've got that blood and I'm looking to see whether I've got a, a uterine mass. Um, but my experience is ultrasound hasn't been a useful additional diagnostic modality. Yeah, or if you had that rare um, bladder cancer, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. Um, The radiograph is just so, so useful in this particular condition that that's always what I'd be reaching for, as you mentioned at the start there, Mark. So, well, treatment, we, we can't really jump into treatment until we sort of mention some briefly we're going to be punchy here mark of the possible causes of of the urinary sludge and the way i view this is it's potentially lots of other conditions that that hamper that whole process of uh the kidney function and the bladder um and with the urine and urine retention or urine expulsion and the use of the litter tray um so it's everything from osteoarthritis mark getting old these rabbits fat obese rabbits rabbits that have um, lots of flabby floppy bits around their perineal region um, and interfering with things there rabbits that perhaps aren't on a good diet mark um, because what they're taking in and their fluid content that they're taking in or not taking in can have an influence on their fluid output mark the calcium content's an interesting one because it's a little bit controversial about how much we can adjust the diet regarding calcium content that would potentially or not potentially affect the calcium sludge mark. Um, so I'd like your comment on that. So it's look for underlying causes, Mark, is, is my my answer to that, not just for one potential underlying cause. It might be one of several possibilities. And I think it's, it is uh, that sort of like critical mass thing. It, there's a whole bunch of factors. Um, it's the classic multifactorial disease that, that rarely is it just a single thing. It is a whole array of things, the uh, inactivity, the, the uh, inad- inadequate numbers of urinary sites. Maybe there's not enough litter trace. Maybe the litter tray is soiled and the rabbit just holds on for an extra 
half an hour, an hour before it absolutely has to go. And all those factors combined, the obesity, the inactivity, the um, uh, sediment that builds up because they haven't urinated for that extra hour and then all of a sudden it trips over into the yep. accumulation of sludge. Yes. So and I agree a... with you that um, I, don't, I, I think I still, you know, hand the clients the the, uh, the Oxbow uh, Oxbow are one of our wonderful sponsors. So I'm, de- you know, um, declaring a conflict of interest here. Uh, but they have a, a diet that has a number of um, nutrient adjustments and uh, uh, um, things that are designed to limit the amount of calcium and also to engender some health to the bladder. But I don't, the actual effect of changing the calcium using capsicum and cucumber instead of alfalfa, um, I think it's something that I still recommend, but I don't know that I'm actually changing the amount of calcium they excrete. Yeah, yep, yep. What do you reckon, Brendan? I've got one quick question for you about sunlight. Sunlight. Everybody needs it. That's my answer to that, Mark. Um, so you're getting down the range of the old calcium, vitamin D, and metabolic bone disease variations. Yes, and well, with rabbits, I always trot out the the, the there was a classic study done which looked at wild rabbits. It looked it was in the UK, I think. It looked at backyard rabbits, so pet rabbits that just wander around the backyard like we tend to have dogs and cats or dogs <laughs> these days in the backyard. And it looked at house, house rabbits, rabbits, rabbits that were 24-7 inside, very little if any exposure to um, unfiltered light, and they measured the vitamin D levels of them. And not unsurprisingly, the wild rabbits and the backyard rabbits had virtually identical vitamin D levels, and some of the indoor rabbits had undetectable levels, Mark. Um, so that's sort of my roundabout answer to that one. Um, is that getting towards what you were? Um, yes. Well, I think about? that that abnormal and then tying it in with your calcium. Yeah. 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 So I think uh, I do recommend, and I think just being out in the sun is likely to increase activity levels. So um, maybe it has a a vitamin D calcium metabolism effect. Maybe it just is that they're happier to hop around and and agitate that urine. I think we undersell that aspect of um, movement in rabbits in that it is an important factor of their physiology. And I'm trying to remember which textbook or or research article that I read many years ago that mentioned that um, movement and the actual active hopping around and moving around in a rabbit does have a function to play in in um, um, gut motility uh, yeah. um, is what they that what they um, thought or re- or said in that or reported in in that particular publication mark so getting your rabbit to get out there and on the treadmill mark is important get it outside get it um, moving around and it's it's something we always try to recommend to our clients who have rabbits who have that other rabbit condition gut stasis um to get them moving mark um, is an important part of the whole process of recovery with them so i think it's the same story and the, the other thing that i always mention to clients with the 
sludgy rabbits mark is i explain it as as far as the fact that you know your rabbit is now passing sludgy sludge all the time now and it's it probably had the sludge building up over time and i just do visualize with them the you know thought of having sand in a balloon um with with you know water on top of that sand and that when your rabbit urinates it just urinates off the top urine and the sludge that's being produced all the time just keeps building up more and more and more until eventually it does become an issue excellent so. analogy excellent analogy and it that analogy also leads you then to the fact that um, it is going to take some time uh, for the recovery process if you can adjust those activity levels obesity uh, dietary factors exposure to sunlight um, then it still will take some time before everything settles down but brendan the good news is where once this was a condition that well when i first started as a rabbit focused veterinarian this i thought this was just a you know always going to recur uh, but as we've introduce these uh, lifestyle changes we've had significant proportion of the rabbits um, not fall back into the milky sludgy urine story yeah and i think it is looking at that holistic you know what is a rabbit how is a rabbit kept what's what's the setup for it what is it fed um, is it overweight or not um, and is it an old rabbit and, and addressing those problems with those old arthritic rabbits, which is a common problem that often helps with these sludgy rabbits as well, I think. So any another any secondary or final f- thoughts, Mark, or comments about sludge in rabbits? Look, I, we haven't, the, our previous podcast we talked about uh, flushing the bladder, but I'm always keen to hold off on, you know, just as a final message, if the rabbit if can be identified as still urinating and those lifestyle changes, the broader holistic approach works, not manipulating the bladder and having to flush it really does make um, uh, things less traumatic for the rabbit. Um, so I think while we talked about that in episode 148, I think it was, um, if we don't have to do it, I'm always keen not to uh, to do the flush unless I absolutely have to. Good point, Mark. Just slowly, slowly, softly, softly approach there and um, you often get there with them. So, yes, sludge. Send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Tell us about any sludgy cases you've seen recently and we'll um, reply to you properly and we'll look forward to talking to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.